I want to begin with a couple of questions, and uh, of course I'll answer them, but how do you know what time it is? Uh, how, do, how do we tell what time it is? And asking that question here, you might uh, look back at me, and you might say, well, Pastor, uh, uh, you just have to look what time it is. And we bought you a clock for the sanctuary, and I hung it over there in the corner, so I can see that pretty well, and I know what time it is. Um, and they might even say, well, we, we notice you do tend to ignore it as well a lot. Um, I remember growing up in Baptist churches. We grew up in lots of different Baptist churches. My mom and dad helped build church buildings and stuff like that. We had one pastor who made a big deal out of this maneuver before he'd start his sermon. Said it right there. And then he never saw it again. <laughs> he just kept right on going. It didn't matter what it was there for. It meant absolutely nothing. Uh, but uh, I do look at the clock, and I notice that there's also another one on the TV screen back there. I don't know if somebody's trying to get my attention or not. However, um, I am talking about time this morning, and I'm talking about time, and I want to ask you the question, can you tell what time it is? And I'm not talking about on that clock back there, or on your watch, or on your cell phone, but as you look around at what's happening in the world, do you know what time it is? Can you tell? Can you tell when God is orchestrating something and it is your cue that you need to do something. Now, as I'm paying attention and I'm listening and I'm looking and I'm watching what's happening in our country and around the world, what seems to me to be happening is very clear, and that is that we are inching ever so close to the rapture and God's removal of the church out of, of this land and, and across the earth. for the one world government and for the one world religion that the Bible says is going to come. And so I'm looking at what's happening in the world and I'm asking myself, what time is it? And depending on what time it is, we have to do something. All right, so when I notice that the clock is at 12-ish or so, uh, I know that I have to do something, I have to quit. Uh, but if I'm looking at what's happening in the world and I notice that it looks like everything is falling into place, as everything falls apart in our country, that Jesus may return soon. I mean, maybe even by the time we're uh, done with our service, he could show up, and everything is in place where the end times could, could just start immediately. All kinds of bizarre things have been happening, and things in our country that we don't understand because they go against the Constitution as if there is no Constitution. What time is it? Well, I'm interested in what time is it in terms of what God is doing and am I going to respond the right way? Now, I'm not talking politically. I'm talking about spiritually. If I don't have very much time left and you don't have very much time left, what should we do? Well, certainly we want to live for God. Certainly we want to do the right thing. Certainly we want to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as we can. And I think that's the time. God is always presenting us with opportunities to serve him. and We are always making decisions as to whether or not we're going to serve him when he calls on us to do so. So to reiterate the opening question, are you able to recognize what time it is and then take appropriate action in the service of God? Today we're going to find a young lady who is facing the possibility of death, and her name is Hadassah, and she is going to be called on to do something that if she tries it, she could lose her life. 
And I want to read about that as we go through uh, chapter 4. Uh, we're going to do the whole chapter because I, I don't want to break it up uh, this morning. Let's read that and what's happened. Now remember, there has just been a decree that went out into the land of Persia, all 127 provinces, and that decree is that in Adar on the 13th of the month, you can rise up against your Jewish neighbors and put them to death, and then whatever they own, you just feel free to take it, and it'll be spoiled for you. That has gone out. Now let's see what the response is, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he wailed loudly and bitterly. He went as far as the king's gate, for no one was to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So there's a rule there. Mordecai's out in the city. He's wearing sackcloth and ashes. He's crying. He's wailing over what's going to happen to the Jews. He goes up to the king's gate, but he does not go in because uh, that's against the law. He could be killed for that. Anyway, uh, in each and every province, verse 3, where the command of the, and decree of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay on sackcloth and ashes. Then Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her, and the queen writhed in great anguish. I don't know if you've ever seen somebody in so much pain that they're laying on their bed or they're laying down on the ground, and they just can't stop writhing. There's so much pain. Uh, this, this is what's happening to her. And uh, she went and sent garments to clothe Mordecai that he might remove his sackcloth from him, but he did not accept them. He refuses to do that. Then Esther summoned Hatach from the king's eunuchs, from the king, whom the king had appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. It's interesting that the queen of the land doesn't even know this has happened. So Hatach went to Mordecai to the city square in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. We talked about that last time. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa, which is the town therein, for the destruction that he might show Esther in, and inform her and order her to go into the king to implore his favor and to plead with him for, notice, her people. Hatak came back and related Mordecai's words to Esther. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and ordered him to reply to Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that for any man or woman who comes to the king to the inner court who is not summoned, uh, then he has but one law that he be put to death. So if you bother the king and you haven't been invited and you don't have an appointment, you could lose your life. He kills people for doing that. And she's saying this is what would happen unless the king holds out to him a golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned to come to the king for 30 days. Hmm. They related Esther's words to Mordecai. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not imagine that you are in the king's palace, that you can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. You and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. 
Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens also will fast in the same way, and thus will we will go. To, I will go to the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther commanded him. All right. So get this: Mordecai's outside. He's got on sackcloth and ashes because of the decree that Haman wrote that the king's signet ring was on. So he made it law. And that means that in 11 months, all the Jews are going to be slaughtered by their friends, their neighbors, and by soldiers and everybody else. All their spoils distributed all around. So he is wailing and he is crying. All the Jews are acting this way in all 127 provinces because this is happening. And he gets word uh, from, from his, uh, his adopted daughter, Hadassah, or Esther, and she says, what are you doing? Don't do this. I sent you some clothes to put on so you take off the sackcloth, which is a sign of mourning. And he says, don't you think, young lady, that just because you are the queen and you're in the king's house that somehow you're going to escape the death and the slaughter of all the Jews? And how do you know that God didn't put you in that palace for just this very event? And he says, I'll tell you something else. If you don't do something, God will raise up some place, someone to save the Jews and you will perish. And so Esther says, okay, you guys, you guys fast and my maidens and I, we will fast and I will go to the king uninvited without an appointment and I will walk in that room and if he holds out the golden scepter to me, I get to live. If he doesn't, this is the end of me. And I guess if I die, I die because the time is urgent for people of God to act. Now I want you to notice, I'm going to be talking about God all morning here. That word doesn't appear in this text. I'm going to mention prayer. It's not in this text. I'm going to mention the Lord. It's not in this text. But what we are finding out is that when God is silent, God is still working. And we need to be working right along with him, even if God isn't talking to us and telling us exactly what to do or why to do it or what's, what's going on. And I think that's unbelievably applicable to where we are today. Where are we on the calendar of the church? What are the signs of the times that God said would not, would not overtake us by surprise? And I see all these things happening in our world. It's time for us to do something. And it was time for Esther to do something. In verses 1 to 3... God's people can be faced with life-threatening situations from the enemies of God. Now, just because we might be raptured soon doesn't mean that it won't take a little longer and there could be a lot of persecution and affliction for the church of Jesus Christ. That is certainly coming because people hate us because of what we believe about God, what we believe about eternal life, and what we believe about morality and things like that. So we could be faced with life-threatening situations. Well, certainly the Jews were in Esther's day. Now remember that Haman was basically made the second man in charge. And when he brought to the king that there's a group of people in your land, they don't believe like you believe. They don't teach like you teach. They don't agree with you. We need to just kill them. The king said, good idea. Took off his signet ring, handed it to him and said, just do whatever you wanna do, however you wanna do it. And he did, he wrote a letter and said, I've picked a date. Uh, because we, we cast lots to come up with a date. 
and this is when you're all going to be put to death. Now they get to live with that, they think, for 11 months. How would you like to know that your death is impending, like you're on death row, and you know the date and the time that that's going to happen, and you have to live with that every day. That's what these people are already going through. Well, Haman did that, and then he put the king's signet ring on it, which made it law, and it could not be reversed. He has, uh, he has taken offense over one man, Mordecai, who is a Jew, who refuses to bow and show honor to him. So it's a thing of pride. And he's completely filled with his pride. And, and you know, nobody should not be allowed to bow to me. And Mordecai didn't bow. Now Mordecai is going to cause a lot of trouble for the Jews. And here it is. Now he's gonna, this guy's going to put to death the entire nation because one man refused to show honor to Haman. And the king has allowed him to decree the death of every Jew in the kingdom, but the king didn't even ask who it's for. Uh, I, I'm sure that Ahasuerus didn't even know it was about the Jews. He doesn't know his queen is a Jew because Mordecai said, keep that a secret. And that's going to work into what God does. Anyway, there are now 10,000 talents of silver and permission to go ahead with the slaughter. Ahasuerus has given Haman his royal signet ring, so now it's law. What Mordecai decided to do on his own, which is don't show respect to one of the government leaders, is now the root of the cause uh, for the extermination of all the Jews. I told you an illustration about how uh, I worked for a place and they had some tires that didn't belong to them and a car was sold with their tires on it and the person that came to look at those tires wanted to know where it was and I was told to lie about it. And I finally said, I'm not gonna lie about it. And if you don't tell them, that those cars that don't belong, those tires don't belong to you were sold, I'm gonna tell him. Basically, I was told, you stay away from him and I'll tell him. And what happened was, because of what I did, out of 75 cars, half of them had to all have brand new tires purchased by the company uh, that, that were expensive tires. They had to buy all brand new tires because I wouldn't lie that day. Now, I didn't have to pay for those tires, but I caused quite a debt in the company because I wouldn't do what I was asked to do. That's nothing compared to a man who refused to show honor to a, to a government official and now the lives of everyone in his nation is planned to be snuffed out. That's a big deal. I wonder if he had any trouble sleeping at night knowing that this was on him. I don't know, the text doesn't say. In verse 1, Mordecai responded to the news of the decree of the death by putting on sackcloth and covering himself with ashes. He went into the midst of the city and he wailed out loud and bitterly wept over the edict that had been issued. In verse 2, he only went as far as the king's gate. Now we believe he worked at the king's gate. And that's where he did his judicial stuff because he was part of the judicial issuing of the king's gate. So he goes back kind of to his workplace, but there's a gate there that leads into the king's part of the thing. And you don't go in there, not dressed like that, not wailing and making a show out of yourself. You don't do that. You would die. So he stops there. In verse 3, each of the 127 provinces of the king of Persia received that edict and it caused great sorrow among God's people. So all over this great nation, there are people wailing and crying because they're being afflicted and it's coming. Sackcloth is what they put on when they wanted to show that there was a catastrophe in their life and there's grief in their life and in the heart of the person over some terrible event. That's, that's how you showed it. And it wasn't just Jews that did that. 
all over the ancient Near East, that's how people showed that they were in mourning, that they had been hit by some problem, and it was overwhelming. Well, that's what he's doing. There was an ancient historian by the name of Herodotus, and he recorded how the Persians under Ahasuerus tore their clothes because of their grief after they lost the Battle of Salamis against the Greeks and their allies. And this was a common behavior in the ancient world over a bad situation. So instead of hiding their emotions and pretending like anything didn't happen, they put on this sackcloth, they poured ashes on their heads, and then they went out and they wailed and, and they lamented outside. You know, if they did that in, in our day, you would not have a problem knowing if there was something wrong with somebody or if they had a problem. Uh, this is how they did it. In verses 4 to 8, a bad situation mandates that God's people take action where they are able. Now we're looking at an ancient lady who has to make a decision. What if we're looking at some modern people who are very soon going to be called on to make some tough decisions about will I follow Christ or will I turn and run when they turn up the pressure to run from Christ? Will I give in? Will I stand firm? Will I continue to pray? Will I continue to come to church? Will I continue to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people? Or what will the pressure do to us? What would you choose? And we'll see what she chose. In verse 4, perhaps Esther knew her uncle and knew that for him to be acting like this, something had to really be wrong. At any rate, she can't talk to him in person. He can't talk to her. She's the queen. She writhes in pain. And, and I'm sure is weeping over whatever it is that Mordecai has going on. She says, go find out what it is and why he's doing this. Then she attempts to calm him and soothe him, maybe because it's kind of embarrassing because her adopted dad is out here doing this stuff, sends him a set of clothes and says, would you just take off the sackcloth, put on these, let's, let's figure this out some other way. And Mordecai says, I will not. And he refuses. Esther then sends uh, this chief eunuch that's in charge of uh, taking care of her, Hatach, to Mordecai to learn what's going on. Apparently the queen is so secluded from the goings-on of the business of the kingdom that, that troubles her subject, she doesn't even know it. She did not know about the edict. And you think, how can you live in the palace with a king and not know? Well, because that's the king's business and she takes care of different, different things with the king, like domestic things, and that's not her business. She doesn't know. So a talk in verses 68 goes to Mordecai, and he gets the truth about the situation uh, right from him. The truth is bolstered by the fact that he has an exact copy uh, of what was, was said about the killing of the Jews, a text of the edict. And he knew how much money Haman was giving to get this job done. And he has a plan that he wants to relay uh, to Hadassah. He wants her to go to the king, forget about the fact that it's a, it's a death warrant if he hasn't invited you, go to the king, whatever you have to do, implore his favor. If you have to beg him, beg him to save the Jews. Now we understand once a law is made in Persia, it cannot be revoked. So what does he expect the king to do? The king is the one that gave his permission for this. Will he love this girl that much? He's got hundreds of other women he can choose from. Is she going to mean that much for, for him? I want you to go to the king and implore his favor, plead with him for her people. And the king 
the king is in the dark about the nationality of those who are going to be killed. His queen is one of them. The word for implore is the word in the Hebrew uh, for the Hebrew word grace, Hanan. And it means to show favor, to be gracious, to be merciful or compassionate. Go to the king and see if he'll do any of that for your people. Now there's a plan that has been put forth and somebody has to implement the plan. Somebody has to carry it out. So what time is it? It's time for a decision. It's time for me to decide as Queen Esther, I have to decide, am I gonna risk my life and go and try to save my people? I might perish and they all die anyway, but should I do something? Should I, should I take a stab at this? Should I, should I really try? Is it worth that? And she finally decides it's time for me to act. And all of a sudden, the problem she has been isolated from becomes her problem. And she has to do something about it. In verses 9 to 12, the solution to the problem often involves danger or hardship to see it through. You know, in our country, we, we really haven't suffered for Jesus Nobody has been killed uh, on, on any kind of a large scale because they love Jesus. Nobody's had their land taken away because they love Jesus. Nobody's had their family separated because they love Jesus. Uh, we, we have not been told we can't meet here and, and worship together. Uh, we don't know what it's going to be like in the future. The question is, why don't you make up your mind and I'll make up my mind. What are we going to do before that time comes? We want to do whatever Jesus wants us to do before we no longer have time to do what he wants us to do. Well, there is a message sending and a message receiving that goes on between Hadassah and Mordecai. And her answer is straightforward. Hadassah could very well lose her life. Now, this is a real thing. If she carries this out, what her adopted father wants her to do. This, this could really happen. It did happen at times. So she knows it's a possibility. A person did just, just did not walk into the king's presence and say, hey, king, what's going on today? How's it going? What's happening? Uh, that, that's, that's not going to stand. And if the king doesn't hold out the golden scepter to say you're excused, you're going to be killed. Because I just walked into the king's presence. The last queen, who did not do what her husband told her, got removed from being queen, banished, and sent out of the palace. Well... She didn't even walk in unannounced. She was invited somewhere. What if, what if Hadassah does what she's asked to do? How's he going to respond? Her only hope is that if she goes into his presence, he'll pick up the golden scepter and extend it, and she'll come up and touch it and say, I received that, and, and she keeps her life. Her only hope is that he will do that, hold out the gold scepter, which means his decision is she will live and not be killed that day. The Persians had this rule to protect their king. You just don't walk into his presence because somebody might try to kill him. She adds uh, that the king hasn't summoned her for 30 days. It's not like there's maybe a chance I'm going to go anytime soon. He hasn't called me one time in 30 days. Well, Mordecai warns her that she is not just safe because she's in the king's palace. We don't know where he got this information, but uh, he uses it to spur his daughter on in helping the Jews. In verse 14, Mordecai brings up a theological point. He doesn't mention God's name. He doesn't talk about the Lord, but he brings up a theological point, and he's right. And that is, and listen to this, he, his point is that God is going to save his people. That's his point. 
The issue is, Hadassah, do you want to be a part of that? Or do you not want to be a part of that? Do you want to go ahead and maybe perish because you didn't do what God told you to do and God will bring on someone else to take up what you're supposed to be doing? God will always have a remnant of Israel. And Israel is the most important nation in the end times of this world. And God has not given up on them. If the person who God wants to act does not do it, that person will be bypassed by God and he will find another way or another person. Now I'm talking about Esther and Mordecai and I'm talking about us. If God calls us to do something for him and we say, no, we're not going to do it, it doesn't mean God isn't going to get it done. It just means God is not going to get it done with you or me. I want to ask you this question. Do you think that God has ever put in, in place something for you to do, something right in front of you, and God wants you to do it, and you refuse to do it, and God got it done anyway because God went to plan B? Uh, has that ever been the case? Do you think that God has ever had to go to plan B because you or I didn't step up and we didn't do what God wanted done? That's the decision that this young lady is facing. I want to listen to what, what Dr. Brenneman said at this point, and I quote, In the biblical perspective, election, that is God's choosing of people in salvation that the Bible talks about everywhere. Now get this. In the biblical perspective, election is for service, not just for one's own benefit. Some people think that God opened my eyes so I could see the truth of the gospel and called me to be one of his children just so I get to go to heaven and I can live whatever way I want to. I get to go to heaven and just skip off doing my own thing. But that's not what is the truth. Dr. Brenneman hit it right on the head. God didn't just save us so that we can get to heaven. He saved us for service. He saved us because he has something he wants us to do. And we need to be available to do it. God expects us to be an active part of the kingdom. Not just somebody who has their ticket to heaven and doesn't do anything about it. Mordecai believes that God's providence has brought his daughter to this place in the palace. How else can you explain this Jewish girl ending up in a Persian palace as the queen of the whole country if God didn't do it? So he challenges her to look at her position that God gave her. He challenges her to console, uh, I'm sorry, consider the reason for which God placed her where she is. And is it the time for her to use all that for God's purposes? Now, let's just look at, I'm sorry, Jeremiah 29 11 for just a second. Jeremiah 29 11. Did God just write this for the people of Jeremiah's day or for us? God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares Yahweh, plans for your welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Friends, God has a plan for us. And part of what that plan is moving us towards is our future and our hope. And we need to do what God calls us to do with all the things that God has chosen for us, why would he not have also chosen our work for him in advancing the kingdom? Friends, God chose you for a reason. He has a purpose for you. 
And it's not just that he wants to get you into heaven. He has things he wants us each to do. The Bible is full of accounts of God taking ordinary believers, just like you and I, and calling them to do extraordinary works for him. Who knows what extraordinary work we'll be able to do for God in the coming days. God constantly directs the events of life to put us just in the right place with the right person, that's us, to accomplish remarkably miraculous works for him, if we're available. <laughs> but all of them had to accept the call to the challenge and move ahead by faith. Look, for, for example, at what God did with Joseph to put him in the right place to save the nation of Israel in its early days. <coughs> Excuse me, Genesis 45. You remember how his brothers got jealous, sold him into slavery. He spends 13 years in prison, and on and on it goes. And they finally come back asking for food. And he finally says to them, because they figured out who he is, in verse 5, Genesis 45, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves. Wow, talk about a heart of forgiveness. Can you imagine them doing that to you, and he's willing to forgive because he sees things through God's eyes? because you sold me here, like a common slave, like a nobody. He says, here's the reason, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You know what, your life. You guys sold me, you guys turned on me, you guys wanted me to die, you didn't care about me, but God put me here to save your life. What kind of a man is this Joseph? Well, he's a man of God. And he puts God's, God first, and what God wants done, he's okay. So he says, don't be grieved for that, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve your life. Look at all the hardship he went through. Hardship is a part of the program. Dr. Smith said, and I quote, God might have to work outside his normal pattern of using people when his people refuse to get involved, end quote. We must do what God calls us to do, what he set up for us to do, what he planned for us to do. In verses 15 and 16, Hadassah has come to the realization, I have no choice. I choose to put my life on the line to save the nation. She decided this is where God put me on purpose. This is how I got to be queen of Persia. God knew this was coming, and he put me here. She asked for help from the believing community, fast along with her and her maids for three days before she approaches the king. I can't imagine that would not include prayer, but you notice it doesn't say it. This book never mentions God. It never says prayer. <laughs> but if you can't see God at every turn and in everything that's happening, there's something wrong spiritually. And nobody is uh, pointing out specifically, hey, this is what God said in this passage. I mean, people are trying and they're doing a good job of it right now, but are we listening? Do we know what time it is? Do we know that our time might be short? Do we know that we better get with it? It's time to approach the king. Now, if you were a Jew, you'd probably be pretty motivated right now for prayer meetings, wouldn't you? She makes up her mind to say to God, you put me here for this reason. I will obey you even if it ends my life. Now that's faith. That's what we need. 
In verse 17, Mordecai got to, got to the fasting. He started that fasting among the Jews in Susa, and apparently it was going on all over the province with Jews. It is God's work, but we still pray about that work. And we may need to fast for it, depending on him. Here's some conclusions, applications. We cannot control what God calls us to do. Just think about that. If we're raptured soon, God chose you to be a part of that. Isn't that fascinating? I want that to happen in my lifetime. But every Christian I've ever known has wanted that to happen in their lifetime. Wouldn't it be exciting? Wouldn't it be exciting if we were doing what God wanted us to do at this time? We can't control what God calls us to do. He might have called us to some affliction and tribulation and persecution before we get there. That's exciting as well. It may seem outside of our abilities, so we need to be courageous in believing, just like Esther was. Secondly, view your circumstances in life as the providence of God. He is doing something with you. Recognize it. What time is it? Number three, when God says this is your time, this is your purpose, then choose to stand and follow him like this brave young lady is going to do. And finally here, we are not where we are or doing what we are doing by accident. God puts you there. So look to what God wants you to do. Some of that, friends, is going to be corporately. We're going to do things together as a church in these uh, end, end days. And we're going to do some, some things individually. But the whole point is, whatever God lays in our lap to do, that's what we want to do. Now we're going to uh, segue into our celebration around uh, the Lord's table.